Today's sermon, we continue in our message series of selfish versus soul-filled. Selfish versus soul-filled. And today's sermon is first love, enjoy forever. And it really pairs with last Sunday's sermon on February the 13th on the eve of Valentine's Day on romantic love and sex. And today we continue in this little combination in the midst of this larger series. Uh, in the middle of today's sermon, we're going to be talking about marriage and married love, but overall we'll open and close with messages that pertain to all of us. Our scriptures for today, we're going to begin with a couple more passages from a book we focused on a whole lot last Sunday, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and then one little verse, a very strong verse, chapter 6, verse 3 from the Song of Solomon, and then we move over to Proverbs chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 6 and 15 through 21. We'll close the sermon reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's follow along. I invite you to read in your own Bible. We also have the scriptures uh, for the screens today as well. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. She, the bride or the engaged betrothed woman, is speaking. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. And then chapter 6, verse 3, she says again, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And then to the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and 15 through 21. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, so that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not even know it. And then after some verses which, among other things, deal with the cost of infidelity or with sexual relationships outside of marriage, picking up at verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice 
in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he, the Lord, ponders all his paths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. First love, enjoy forever. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, the elder advisor demon, Wormwood, speaks to the baby demon, the demon in training, Screwtape. And he advises Screwtape on a number of matters with respect to the enemy. In the demonic world, the enemy is God. Okay? <laughs> uh, the enemy would be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He, he advises Screwtape with respect to the enemy and with respect to all us human patsies that are easily you know, led astray. Uh, by our current concerns and emotions and say we love God, but then can be led astray pretty easily. In the midst of this, Wormwood is explaining to Screwtape an interesting facet of who God is as the lover of our souls, that God does not do what sometimes some of us want to pray for. God, why can't you just make him be good? Why can't you make her be good? Why can't you just, you know, just beat everybody into shape and force them to acknowledge you as God and uh, let my child be faithful and let this and that happen? He says, you must have often wondered, Wormwood says to Screwtape, why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present. In other words, to be obviously present. Here's God, he's talking to me right now. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. To be sensibly present to human souls, to human souls in any degree he chooses at any moment. After all, God could do that, right? He could just come in and say, you're doing this, get with it. But, but you see now, Wormwood continues, merely to override a human will, as his felt presence, in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do. In other words, God would overwhelm us. He can totally force us to do something. Would be for him, for God, useless. God doesn't want robots. God is calling us to a love relationship, a soul-to-God relationship. So he continues, he cannot ravish. He only woos. He only woos. The creatures are to be one with them, but one with him, yet still themselves. In other words, we're supposed to be totally one with God, yet retain our own identity. That's the relationship that God calls for. Merely to cancel them or to assimilate them into himself will not serve. Now, of course, for Wormwood, advising Screwtape, this is a great advantage. We as demons, in other words, he's saying, can really manipulate this fact that God doesn't use his full force to make everybody just be in his camp and in love with him, even though that wouldn't be love, right? So today I want to invite us, whether you're single, widowed, divorced, married, wherever you are in your life, 
to rejoice in God who woos our souls into love with him. He woos us. He woos your soul and your heart. Psalm 37, verses 4 through 6, the first of these verses, we actually put on what our visitation team sent out with roses as gifts heading into Valentine's Day to a number of our widows, older widows, and folks that our visitation team visits. This first verse says this, you'll know this verse, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And the passage continues, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. In other words, he will highlight the goodness that he is working within you as you delight yourself in the Lord. So again, first note here, and you have this in the sermon notes as well, rejoice in God who woos your soul by a redeeming love, a restoring, saving, redeeming love. Remember this, that God is love. It's not simply that God loves, God himself is love. He is the author of all true love, and he is within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, within the Godhead, a relationship of love. God does not need an outside object. God is within himself, love. It's awesome. So 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe, in other words, as Christians, this is what we come to, we have come to know and to believe the love of God that he has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what I want to remind us of today, myself and you, is what we've been talking about in this series. Remember, the Hebrew word for soul, nefesh, okay, means at its core, primitively, means an open throat. We are made as open throats, as babies who need to be fed, our souls need to be fed, by what God gives, himself, his spirit, the nourishment that comes from him. Now, as open throats, we can chase after a whole lot of junk food and poison selfishly that we think we can manipulate and control ourselves. But God is calling us as souls to receive what only he can give. That's the way we're made. We're made to be open throats. You're going you're gonna to drink something. You're going you're gonna to eat something, right? You're going to consume something in your life, but you're made to be fed by God, and at the heart of the matter, you're seeking intimacy with the God who loves you. Anything less leads to not simply sin, but dissatisfaction and death. What your soul needs, what you need, is intimacy with God. Let me repeat that, intimacy with God. You're made for intimacy. And you know the old, I think it's old country song, right? Looking for love in all the wrong places. If you are not intimate with God, you're going you're gonna to crave intimacy with others in a way that replaces God that is really elaborating the fall. Okay, it's not just that you're a fallen person. At that point, you're heading in the selfish direction off the deep end, okay? Not good. 
What your soul needs is intimacy with the true lover of your soul. We are souls made for, and to the extent we, we aren't intimate with God, we're actually starving. You're starving yourself. You're starving your soul. Now, the fall, the fall affected not simply our bodies. We know that we're mortal, right? We know that we're fallible physically. The fall not, not only affected our bodies and not only affected our minds. We tend to remember that. Oh, yeah, okay, so it's going to throw off uh, my perceptions and I'm going to tend to read things wrong. But the fall also affected, and this is something that Augustine highlights, and probably the greatest American theologian in American history, Jonathan Edwards, highlights also. The, the fall affects our affections. Our affections are bent and broken in the same way our bodies and minds are. For Reformed people out there, in other words, we're talking about total depravity, including depravity of our affections. And, and, and so the big story here with respect to our redemption and our being healed and sanctified in Christ is that our affections would be redeemed and increasingly restored toward God. So to move us from selfish consumers and covenant-breaking people, which we tend to do in our romantic and sexual relationships too, as well as ultimately with God, to being right with God and right with others. Our affections are fallen, they're bent, they're misdirected. They need to be redeemed by Jesus. And we need to, in our prayers and in our relationship with God, ask God to heal our affections. That should be on our prayer list as much as our medical and body issues are before the Lord. So I want to invite you again to rejoice in God. He is your forever first love. God's your first love. A lot of times you ask people, who was your first love? And they're going to think, well, it was that little boy, you know, who, who, uh, when, when we were 11 or 12 or whatever, the one who kind of smiled at me, gave me my first little kiss on the cheek or whatever. No, no, we're, look, I'm telling you, you have a much higher, better first love than the kid in middle school or fifth grade or whenever it was, okay? You have a much greater first love. First, the, first of all, on first, think about supreme. God's love is supreme. It, 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 everything else pales in comparison to God's love. Also, chronologically, I have some good news for you. You do not have to tag the 11-year-old the girl or the 14-year-old boy as your first love. I have good news for you. Before the foundation of the world, God loved you. Long before you were ever made, God loved you and made you for himself. Okay, so he's, he's chronologically, he precedes uh, the kid in middle school by a long shot. And on top of that, on top of that, remember this, that the way this works is, as First John says, God first loved us. Not that we loved God or had anything to offer God. This was not a transaction. <laughs> not, well, God gives this out of me, so obviously he's going to love me. No, no, no. You were not attractive to God. I mean, spiritually, give me a break, right? None of us is attractive. We, we didn't do anything that warranted his love, but here is love. Not that we loved God, John says, 
but that God first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation, an atonement for our sin. And that's, that's first love. That's true first love. And then ultimately, his first love is first because it's secure. It's secure. His banner over me is love. He protects me and secures me. But how can I know when I'm going through hard times? Let me just explain this to you. And if you're listening on the podcast, I am pointing at the cross right now. His banner over me. This is the ultimate banner, the cross. His banner over me is love. And you can cling to the love and the knowledge of who Christ is for you, no matter what is going on in your life. He's brought me to the banqueting house, the house of the Father. That's what Jesus is talking about. And his banner over me is love. Now, if God has led and called you in singleness in this present season, whether you're single, um, always, whether you're widowed, whether you're divorced, remember that in many ways, this is by God's word now, I'm not just making this up. In many ways, the scripture says it's better to be single than to be married. Paul himself, who of course was single his entire life, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you know, there's a challenge with marriage, right? Paul, in the midst of affirming marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, says, look, if God has called you to singleness, embrace that, uh, whether that's for a season or for most of your life or all of your life. Because look, when, when you're married, you're constantly tugged one way or the other to try to please your spouse or to try to please God. It's complicated. Don't, don't covet marriage when that's not what God is giving you, right? But let me say this too. What really struck me is it's really important because we may, we're made, our hearts and souls are made for intimacy. And if you're not married, and if you're not in a family household right now, this reminds me as a pastor and reminds us as a church, we need to be really engaging in friendship connection. And I don't just mean passing somebody at the coffee and saying, how's your week going? I'm talking about intimacy because God makes us, yes, intimacy for intimacy with himself. But part of the way that we are then to live that out is our brotherhood and sisterhood with each other in the church. And for those of us who are married, again, like Paul just said, right? It's easy to get distracted with wanting to please our spouse and our immediate children or grandchildren, but here's the thing. We need to commit ourselves to and allocate time for real friendship, connection, and fellowship with others, including specifically single folks in the church family, whether presently single, always single, whether divorced, whether uh, widowed. This is really important. That's part of the way we manifest and encourage intimacy with God. That being said, if God has called you to be married, let me lead with this. You will not truly love and serve as a spouse well unless you are first and foremost intimate with God. You're not going to be good at intimacy with your spouse or really, for that matter, you may do a lot of things for your spouse, you may do a lot of things for your kid, but you're not gonna be intimate with them. You're not gonna know how to be intimate with them well unless you're first and foremost intimate with God. Because that's the way you're made. That's the way souls work. 
You can try to get around it. You can read self-help books. You can say, I'm going to work hard on this this week. But it's not truly going to flow unless it flows from first and foremost and always in intimacy with God. Then you know how to be intimate with your spouse. Remember, God has made us, we've been highlighting this during this series, as embodied souls, and male and female. There's a specific design pattern with our creation, male and female in God's image. If you are married, again, let me just say this, stay true to your first love, Jesus. That's your first assignment to be a good married person. Stay true to your first love, Jesus, and then from that, stay true to your first love among men, among humanity, and that is your spouse. Your key horizontal loyalty and love is to be to your spouse. Above and beyond, yes, your children, and I know it's easy to be tempted in the wrong direction here, your first covenant love, your first intimacy is to be with your spouse, not your child, and do not turn your child, God forbid, into a surrogate spouse. God forbid. It's bad for you, it's horrible for them. So if you are married, then you can see I'm flowing from this into the second kind of segment of this sermon. If you are married, rejoice in the bride or the groom that God has given you. Rejoice in your spouse. I'm not just saying put up with your spouse. I'm not just saying be nice to your spouse. I'm saying rejoice. Rejoice, have joy in your spouse. Live a first love marriage every single day God gives you a marriage. Every single day God gives you a marriage. Live a first love marriage. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Say that every day and pray that every day over your spouse. So several action points here. You can see them in the sermon notes. First of all, fight for your first love. Pay the price and defend your marriage. Let me repeat that. Fight for your first love and defend your marriage. His banner over me is love. Remember in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, what a banner is. Primarily, foremost, a call to armed action. This is a call for spiritual warfare. Do you hear what I'm saying? His, a banner was not put up as just like, oh, we're having a parade today. That's not why, that's not why they, they called people to worship and to war with banners. That's the way it's used primarily in the Old Testament. So if his banner over me is love, that means he is willing to fight to the death for me. And we know that with the ultimate banner. Again, if you're listening on the podcast, I am pointing to the cross right now. We can say it for sure. His banner over me is love. He redeemed me. He fought for me to the shedding of his own blood. That's who the lover of my soul is. And so likewise in our marriages, we need to fight to stay true to our marriages. And it is spiritual warfare. I mean, believe me, talking about wormwood and screw tape, one of the best ways you can get a, a Christian down and attack a Christian community is to go after marriages. So it's also, bear in mind, this means protection. The banner means protection. If his banner over me is love, that means he will protect me. I need to turn to him and trust in him and not my own devices. And likewise, in the marriage, we need to be protecting our spouse. And husbands, as shepherds especially, hear me, husbands, this is your calling. 
Fight for your first love. Pay the price. Defend. Not just put up with. Putting up with is not going to do the deal here. (laughs) Defend your marriage. Second application here is go God's way for you with your, and I have several things marked off here. You can see it in the notes. It flows from Proverbs chapter 5. Your lips. Notice here we're supposed to pick this up in verse 2 and 3. You know, we're talking about the lips and, and God's truth needs to be on the lips of the person, okay? As opposed to then we go over to the lips of the adulteress who her lips drip honey. Your lips need to be faithful to God. What you are saying, what you're thinking about needs to be the word of God and the truth of God and your love for your spouse. Because believe me, if not, your lips can go in the wrong direction. And of course, we're not just talking about theoretically. In this case, as we've already said, the wisdom literature is very graphic with the sexuality here. We're talking in, in, in the American South. Now, if you're Italian and you're listening to this, great. Or if you're from one of those cultures where all the guys kiss, you, kiss each other on the lips and greeting, that's great. I'm not sure how that's going during the COVID period. But anyway, uh, in the American South, I can tell you, guys, girls, what this means is a full-out lip kiss is only for your spouse and other kind of things related to that, only for your married spouse. Your mind, be faithful with your mind, where your thoughts go. Jesus really emphasizes this, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. Your body, now, let me return to what I said last week. You can listen to last week's sermon again. Remember, you don't have to have a master's or other graduate degree in biblical interpretation to get this. You all, we all can understand this. This is graphic sexual language at one level. When we're talking about drink from your own cistern husband, we're talking about sex at home. Drink from your own cistern, that means your wife. Okay? Your wife is the cistern from which you are supposed to drink, period. But you are supposed to drink from her. And likewise, husbands, your springs should not be scattered in the street. I wonder what that's talking about. This is obvious reference to male sexuality here. Your springs, your fountain needs to be faithful within the marriage relationship. Um, In Better Than a Monastery, which is a sermon to which I'll refer you, uh, I I preached this back in July of 2016, talking about Martin Luther's pilgrimage and how he ended up married and what he learned from marriage. Uh, Just a few things taken away from that sermon, but you can go back and listen to the audio. It's on our archive um, sermons. Uh, You can access it in the website. But a few things on Luther. I just love the story. You you know I love Luther and and the fact that he becomes married in his 40s after being pretty much a lifelong bachelor and for for much of that time a monk. It's so fascinating. He said, um, this is what that sermon title was for. He said, um, marriage is a better school for character than a monastery. He had been a monk for like 18 years, you know, and he says, Marriage is a better school for character than any monastery because, even better than a monastery, marriage rubs off your rough corners. Anybody married? Seriously married? You know what he's talking about, right? Marriage rubs off your rough corners. And of course, parenting, you can do some of that too, right? 
We're so smart about parenting them until we become parents. Luther learned that marriage means sacrifice, looking not only for the needs of yourself, but also your wife and family. And he said even in the first year of marriage, there's a lot to get used to. One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow where there was nothing before. Wake up, you're married. Yep, you're staying married. Luther also said, good God, what a lot of trouble there is in marriage. Adam has made a mess of our nature. Think of the squabbles that he and Eve must have had in their 900 years of marriage. Can you imagine that? 900 years of marriage. And uh, every other day, you know, Eve's chastising Adam. You ate the fruit and he comes back, but you gave it to me. And then Luther says this, uh, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and the husband needs to make her sorry to see him leave. That's your job every day in marriage. Make him glad to come home to you. And husbands, make your wife sorry to see you walk out the door when you need to go do something. So another action point here, rejoice in your bride, your husband, as if this week, this week is your wedding and honeymoon week. That's my assignment for you, okay? Every week, not this week, but I mean every single week that you live married, go into it, just like we go into the week, you know, celebrating Jesus is risen and we're going to live like people who live on this side of the resurrection. So also live every week, including this one, like it's your wedding and honeymoon, okay? That's what the scripture is saying. Rejoice in the bride of your youth. And for even for somebody like Luther who gets married in his 40s, the same kind of principle, right? Every week is the honeymoon. Um, so let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now then third in, this, in the sequence here, um, remembering that God's way is not selfish but soul-filled. Join Christ church in repenting and turning back in first love, hearts and souls, to profess, pray, praise, and love him passionately. What am I talking about here? Well, listen to me. What is our chief end? Everybody know, right? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So apply that everywhere you live, including first and foremost, if you're married in your marriage. What is our chief end in our marriage? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What's your chief end if you're single? in your singleness, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And God calls us back to a real first love kind of relationship in everything that we do here. So to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the first of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, Jesus, Jesus who is present and guiding his church, is calling his churches to faithfulness, says this. Here's what Jesus says. I know your deeds, this is to the Ephesian church, and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But Jesus continues, I have this against you, that you have left, you have forsaken your first love. This is really shocking. I mean, he goes on to say in, in 
verse 6, you've even rejected the Nicolaitans. In other words, you've rejected bad theology and false apostolic authority. I mean, you've been discerning, and you're working hard, and you're enduring in faithfulness. You're doing the church thing well on the surface. So you would say, Jesus, what are we doing wrong, right? This is what the Ephesian church might say. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Yeah, you're faithful at a human level, but you're not intimate with me. And you're not on fire for me like you were when you became believers. And you know what? That's not just manifesting itself in your relationship with me. It's manifesting in the way that you're a church together. Sure, you're theologically sound. And sure, you're doing all the kind of gatherings and you're doing the ministry stuff. But you know what? The love's not there for me and for each other. And I have a warning for you, Jesus says, to this church. I mean, this seems like a good church, right? Jesus says, you've forsaken your first love. You need to turn back to me. And in turning back to me, turn to each other in an outflow of love. Because if you don't, I'm going to take your lampstand away from you. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first. In other words, real love. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And then verse 7, he says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Isn't that awesome? The true bridegroom telling us this. You think back to Adam and Eve, right? And now here we are restored. And he gives us. We're not eating the wrong fruit, right? He ultimately gives to us the fruit from the tree of life. That we might live in perfected love with him forever. That's our calling. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. Turn to him. And we as a church and as Christians need to be turning to the Lord every day, repenting and opening our souls to that kind of love. Come to him. Let us come together and rejoice in our true first love forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.